Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. We've got a great show for you today, a very interesting one, I have to say, uh, because I've always been fascinated with laws that kind of govern uh, very specific areas of the world. And today we're going to cover food law. S- laws, uh, you know, I, strange is a, is a strong word, but but you got to cover everything. You know, we, we live in, in corporate America. There's, you know, food is quite a big thing here. The, the gigantic corporations who have recipes that they've got to hold pretty close to their chest. They protect their intellectual property. You know, the Keebler Elves have a very specific way that they're going to make cookies, and they don't want anyone else to know about it. You know, the, the old Colonel, KFC, uh, K- K- Colonel Sanders, you've got a pretty, you know, pretty specific recipe with all those herbs and spices. So they hold this stuff pretty close to the vest, and it's, it's pretty interesting the lengths that they'll go to um, to protect that. Uh, also, you know, the, the amount of stuff that you can and cannot have in food. How many cockroach legs per glass of orange juice do you think we're allowed? Well, we're going to find out about that. And and how many human toes that are not allowed in a bowl of chili? Uh, sure you heard about that famous case. And we're also going to talk about one of my favorite cases, uh, the Stella Liebeck famous McDonald's hot coffee case. And I think the the details of that case are going to come as a surprise to you. But, you know, we talked about Colonel Sanders. I got a, I got another member, uh, honorary member of the pretend military, and that is Captain Mustard, Barry Levinson. Uh, Barry, thanks for being on the show today. So is Captain Mustard, is that like, uh, is that a childhood name? Were you were you in the Army? Were you, did you not become a colonel? Uh, yeah, someone else, I guess, has Colonel Mustard. And I, d- I don't want to get into trouble with Hasbro. Right. So, <laughs> so I guess I'm just Captain Mustard. So would they come down hard on you, do you think? Uh, from what I understand, knowing uh, knowing what I know about them, they would probably come down very hard. Yeah, I've already I've already had uh, I, I had a client uh, who who actually had an an issue. Uh, he he had a uh, some Mr. Potato Head uh, cards, and they were hysterical, but they went after him like crazy. Really. Yeah, but I got him to back off. So well, I was going to say because you—I mean—you got the goods. You, I mean, you shouldn't be blanking. You're—I mean—you're a—you're a lawyer. I mean, you were at the highest level. You would—you would—you were at the Supreme Court. So I mean, how That's are you true. backing down from Hasbro? Well, um, right now I just don't want the trouble. Um. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> You know, and Fair everyone enough. and everyone knows me as Captain Mustard around here, so that's, that's okay. okay. I mean, look, Captain yeah. America. I mean, he wasn't Colonel America. You know, no, I mean, he there's wasn't. a reason for that. Nope. That's right. right. So, uh, so you you're into all kinds of stuff. I mean, we're we you know, oh food food just scratches the surface. But uh, but let's talk about about some of these these wacky things that you're into. So you're into food laws. So you you, you not only you know weird food laws, which um, you got this great book, Habeas Codfish. Uh, which right. you, you cover lots of strange food laws and weird stuff, but also kind of run-of-the-mill laws that revolve around food. Uh, so it kind of has it all. Um, how, how did you get into to this? How did this become the focus? 
Well, uh, I got into food law really by accident. Uh, oh, it must have been about 35 years ago or so when I was working at the uh, Public Service Commission, which is the utility uh, regulation uh, regulatory commission in Wisconsin. I just happened to be thumbing through a book of old reports. And there was way back then the Railroad Commission uh, was involved. And I found a case involving, I think it was the Oklahoma Railroad Commission. And the question was whether or not uh, they could regulate the uh, the Fred Harvey stations, Fred Harvey uh, restaurants uh, that were in the rail stations and uh, that they would allow the Fred Harvey there to require men to wear jackets and ties in the dining room. And I said, what is going on here? This is food. And of course, I've always been uh, someone who loves food. Mm -hmm. And I said, hmm, I wonder what other kinds of food cases there are out there. So I made that a hobby. And finally, when I had so much material, uh, you know, accumulated, uh, my wife said, either you throw it out or you write a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wrote a book and that's kind of become uh, something else I do. I also teach food law at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Uh, and uh, I occasionally give lectures around the country. Uh, just most recently, I know I gave one to the Utah Justice Association because food and the law is an is an area that I think everyone can relate to, both lawyers and real people. That's <laughs> what I like right. to say. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much going on here. I mean, you know, for example, just recently uh, there was a uh, a lawsuit filed. Uh, on behalf of Miller and Coors against the Super Bowl ad against Bud Light. Uh, do you remember the we don't use corn syrup ad? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, y you know, th there may be there may be something to that because it's true. While Miller and Coors use corn syrup in the fermentation process, there is no corn syrup in the finished product. Uh, as a result, uh, there is something potentially misleading. It may be true, but it can also be misleading. It's kind of guilt by association. Right. So that case is pending right now uh, here in the Western District of Wisconsin where it was filed. Uh, it's now up at the Seventh Circuit uh, on an appeal on the uh, grant, the partial granting of a preliminary injunction. So it's fascinating stuff that goes on in food law. Uh, there are cases, for example, now uh, that are challenging some of the new laws that, for example, in Mississippi, in Mississippi, as of July 1, it was illegal to sell uh, a vegan hot dog if the word is hot dog, even if it says vegan hmm. uh, or meatless meatballs. Uh, you can't do that or beyond meat uh, hamburger, even though it says clearly on the label that this is a plant based product. Uh, according to the state of Mississippi, you cannot use uh, typical traditional meat terms uh, in that. And that's been challenged uh, in, in federal court. So there's all kinds of stuff involving the First Amendment, uh, involving just about every uh, area of the law. So I just find food law just a fascinating area. Well, I mean, it's crazy because, you know, a lot, so law, people can get bogged down with the law. And I mean, I think that that's kind of the tricky part here. You really have to walk the line 
with you know being able to explain this stuff in very you know common terms and make it interesting to people um which is really the key and you do that very well i mean i think it's impossible to do it without getting bogged down in some of the stuff because legal terms are very specific the way things are worded are very specific um, you know, the th- two things you talked about, it's kind of interesting. So first of all, with the meatless, you know, the, the, the using the meat terms, it's funny because in another podcast that I did, uh, I learned that the word meat has nothing to do with, with animal muscle. You know, I mean, it originally just meant nutritious food. So right. you, so the the word meat is actually, you know, it's been changed over the course of, you know, hundreds of years in the English language. And now right. we're deciding the legal definition of it so that people who are making nutritious food can't use the original term. We have to use, you know, kind of the adulterated term. Um, and then even not allowed to use that unless it contains actual animal product, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of an interesting evolution. Right. And the same thing is going on with uh, dairy products and so-called milk. Well, mm-hmm. what is milk? Right. Uh, yeah. Milk is the lactic secretions of animals, of, of mammals. And yet uh, there is a, uh, a trend uh, in some states, uh, a movement to make sure that uh, you cannot use the word milk if you are producing something called either like flax milk or almond milk or soy milk. Mm-hmm. There's no, you can't use that word milk. And uh, that's an interesting thing because what about milk of magnesia, right? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, what about the milk of human kindness? Can't sure. use that either. Right, right. So there's so much that goes on. And, and you're right because food is something that everyone deals with. As a result, I think everybody uh, has a stake in what is going on in terms of food. You know, we have all these expectations of food. We expect food to taste good. We expect Mm -hmm. food to be nutritious. We expect food to be safe. We want it to be honest. Uh, We, some, some people want it to be ethically produced. We want it to be environmentally friendly, all these things that we have. uh, And yet some of these then uh, kind of butt up against each other. Right. So that's what makes, I think, food law such a fascinating topic. Uh, it really is. I mean, and milk is a fascinating topic. I just, we don't have to go into this, but I got into this whole this whole conversation about, like, just the fact that human beings are so into drinking the milk of a cow. Because if right. you were to say, like, if you were to, if you were to offer someone, you know, human breast milk, they would, they would turn it down immediately. No one would want to drink that, but we're happy drinking mass-produced breast milk from a completely different animal. Uh, that's just, right. it's such a weird concept and it's just, be, you know, getting used to that stuff over the course of, you know, uh, thousands of years of however long we've domesticated animals. I don't know how long milk products go back, but, um, it's just, it's just very strange stuff. Uh, but unrelated to the law, and yes. you, you, know, you mentioned you, you mentioned the uh, the Coors Light lawsuit, which is a little similar to you go into the the whole kind of like the pizza wars, which I found interesting. Pizza Hut versus Papa right. John's, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of a lot of that going on too. This whole idea of of what is libel, what is slander, like what can you say about another another competitor's product, and what is the definition of truth? You know. Um, because the thing you just said with Coors Light, it's, well, it's technically true because they are using corn syrup. Um, but on a scientific level, is there any corn syrup left in the final product? I don't right. know. Wh- right. Who is, who's correct there? To me, I find those arguments extraordinarily fascinating. Um, I imagine some people may not because not everyone likes the, the kind of the, the mental chest that goes on in these things, but I happen to find that stuff com- compelling. 
Well, it's not just fascinating. I think what Bud Light found was it was effective because apparently, according to the complaint uh, that has not been challenged yet, as far as I know, Bud Light did some focus group testing and they learned that when people hear the word corn syrup, they do not differentiate between regular corn syrup Mm -hmm. and high fructose corn syrup, which is kind of the bad boy now. As a result, uh, there are many people that as soon as they hear the the fact, and it is true that Miller and Coors do brew their uh, light beers with corn syrup in the initial fermentation process, there is no corn syrup left. And yet, Uh, that distinction kind of passes over people. Mm -hmm. So it's an example of in the law where something can be true, but still misleading. Right, right. And that's an interesting distinction that you kind of have to go over. Um, So now let's talk, before we get too deep into the weeds here, um, let's talk about your qualifications, because what makes you qualified to discuss food law? Well, I do have a law degree. Well, that helps. uh, That definitely helps. That does. And I have studied it for years. Uh, And I guess what makes anyone uh, qualified to talk about food law, I've certainly read just about every case there is about food law. Hmm. uh, And I have spoken to many people that are involved in that area. So I, I suppose... You know, maybe that's uh, if that's enough. And if uh, and also when I speak somewhere, uh, I'm from out of town and that makes me an expert. (laughs) If you're from out of town, that makes you an expert. No, absolutely. Uh, You you might be you might be the expert on food. You might be the the guy, the world, the world expert, I would imagine. You know, yeah. Do I represent food companies or do I represent consumers? No, but I think that gives me an advantage because I have uh, no axe to grind. I have no bias in the sense that, oh, I'm a pro-consumer or pro-industry person. I'm interested in food law per se. And if I think a case is uh, kind of silly or ridiculous, either way, I'll let uh, I'll let people know about it, and mm-hmm. I don't, they don't have to say, ah, well, he's just a food industry lawyer, right? Uh, and I think that often does come up. Yeah, I no, think that I think often so. is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. Um, so now, now before we go on, I, we have to talk about one case, which will also serve as a teaser for our little bonus episode here. But you were the assistant, uh, the assistant di- district attorney for Wisconsin. Um, you were, you know, held pretty high offices for the state. It of was Wisconsin. actually the assistant attorney general. I'm right. sorry, I'm sorry, assistant right. attorney general. Um, right. So that's even better. That's amazing. Uh, yes, <laughs> you're uh, like the number two guy. Well, I wasn't number two. There were a bunch of number twos. I I was an assistant attorney general. And it's true. I did argue a case at the United States Supreme Court. And I did so with a jar of mustard in my left pants pocket. And I believe uh, it's no one has ever contradicted me. I am the first and probably the only lawyer to do so. Well, when that, when that, because you won the case five to four. I mean, you you barely won, but but you did win. It still counts as a W. Um, I wonder if this story were to hit mass publication, maybe this show is the one to do it. I wonder if this will start a trend of people putting, you know, condiments of all sorts, but I imagine mustard being the top of the list because it feels like a good luck charm. Yeah. uh, In fact, uh, that case, uh, that jar of mustard, which is now on display at the National Mustard Museum in Middleton, Wisconsin, uh, a a friend of mine borrowed it for his first argument at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Uh and he won that one. So uh, 
Yeah, uh, it hasn't gone out since. It is uh, kind of under uh, bulletproof glass. It's it's very bad, so to speak. Right. I don't know if it's bulletproof, but uh, right. it is glass. secure. It is on display at the National Mustard Museum. Wow, right. unbelievable! So then, I got to ask. So this was in 1987. So you had already done the mustard thing, which we're going to get into later on. But yes. But why did you grab this mustard and put it into your pocket? Well, it was uh, I was on my way to the court. I was staying at the Hyatt in Washington, D.C., running a little late, uh, running down the hallway with my new suit, my new briefcase. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a discarded room service tray. Mm-hmm. And on that tray, I noticed a little jar of mustard. I stopped. I looked at it. At the time, I had maybe 80 or 90 mustards in my collection, and it's one I didn't recognize. So, And, and I saw that it had not been opened. The safety seal was still on it. So there I was on my way to the highest court in the land, and I'm facing this ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. Would it be theft, I asked myself, to take this jar, one that could be reused by the hotel, but one that they were not expecting to get back. So it's not exactly like the silverware of the plates. They want those back. But then again, it doesn't fall in the category of the half-eaten pancakes either. Right. They don't want those back no matter what. Right. Uh, so I think I, I, I looked around. I was running late, did not have time to go back to my room or to make any phone calls. So I think I did what every good lawyer would have done. I took it. Mm-hmm. Right? right. I just took it. Brought it with me to the Supreme Court. I remember uh, going through security and I had to empty my pockets and the marshal there said, what is this? I said, don't ask. I just need it here. He said, "Okay." And uh, sure enough, um, I argued the case. Uh, I remember Justice Rehnquist was the chief at the time. Justice Scalia, I believe, wrote the opinion. Justice White was on the court. Uh, just it was Justice Lewis Powell's last day hearing arguments. So it was uh, it was obviously an eventful occasion. Wow. And I, I remember it uh, very well, as if it were yesterday. And I didn't think, by the way, that any of the, the the court members knew that I had it until the very end when, you know, at the very end, you always say, and if there are no further questions, that will conclude my argument. I started to turn to go back to my seat mm-hmm. when I heard someone clearing his her throat. It was Sandra Day O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And she said, one more question, counselor. Is that a jar of mustard in your pocket, or are you just glad to see me? She did not say that. No, she didn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not really, but hey, what the heck? Right. So <laughs> that's really funny. So if you now this is this is all speculation here, but if you had to argue before the Supreme Court on whether or not what you did to acquire that jar of mustard was theft, do you think you would have won that argument five to four? Well, I probably would have. Uh, And by the way, uh, it was a Fourth Amendment case, and they held that a probationer uh, uh, has no expectation of privacy in his or her uh, home. Uh, And and this was uh, a criminal case involving a search without probable cause, without reasonable suspicion, without diddly squat. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone in the office thought, you're going to lose this. And frankly, I expected to. Uh, frankly, when I did win the case, uh, I've looked back at it and say, I think they got it wrong. But, you know, you do your best. You know, that's what you do. 
<laughs> right. Well, you got you got the victory, so everyone's going to remember that. At least the history books I guess. will. That's uh, right. So before we move on, you do. I want to quickly mention you do a couple other really cool things. Uh, so you write plays, books, yeah, and uh, operettes. I- Yes, uh, I've written uh, another book, uh, several other books. One is called The Seventh Game. It's about the first 35 seventh games of the World Series. Mm -hmm. I've written a children's book about mustard called Mustard on a Pickle. I've written a poetry book called uh, The Book of Poem, uh, singular. And I did write a play that was uh, produced here in Madison, Wisconsin for nine performances at the Bartell Theater uh, in October of 2018. And uh, it's actually up for an award uh, uh, very soon for uh, best uh, original play. Uh, The title is No One Goes to Hell for the Food. See, food again. And it's actually based on a true incident, a real incident. Uh, Thomas Grasso was an inmate uh, in the state of Oklahoma, and he was executed, I believe, in 1995. And his last words were, I didn't get my SpaghettiOs. And apparently he had requested SpaghettiOs for his last meal. He got some generic type of canned spaghetti, and that was his last word. He was very disappointed. So I kind of took that and ran with it. And it is a, well, we'll call it a dark comedy. or <laughs> I, I guess dark comedy or maybe a light tragedy. I don't know what uh, what you would call it. Tragedy, uh, I like that. Yeah. Right. And, and people can email me at curator at mustardmuseum.com if you want to see it. Uh, I will send you uh, their private links uh, to a performance of it. And I'd be glad to send you the link so you can watch it in the privacy of your own home. Well, I, I would love to see it personally. Um, sure. I think that sounds amazing. Um, so I want to talk about Last Meals in a second, but you have you have an operette as well called Madam Butterfat. So you, you yes. songs and, and all this stuff. Yeah, uh, I discovered uh, a great story. The, the first cow to fly in an airplane was a Guernsey cow by the name of Elm Farm Ollie. And she made her historic flight on February 18, 1930, uh, out of St. Louis. Uh, she flew from St. Louis. They milked her, uh, uh, you know, in the Ford trimotor uh, high above uh, uh, the city. And then they dropped some of the sky milk, what they called it, to eager uh, onlookers and fans below. And I said, there's got to be more to it than that. Well, I couldn't find anything uh, beyond that. So in the fine traditions of American journalism, Mm -hmm. I made it up. I made up the rest. (laughs) And that is in song uh, called the Bovine Cantata, uh, which is uh, Madam Butterfat. Uh, And you can actually go on YouTube. And if you just put in Bovine Cantata or Elm Farm Ollie, uh, you can hear it. It's uh, it's about eight and a half minutes long. Wow. So so your talents do not begin and end at the law or food um, or even mustard. They continue on into the world of arts and entertainment. Um, it's pretty incredible stuff. So let's let's talk about last meals because I've often yes. wondered. 
like what are the laws surrounding a last meal? So you, you did uh, the stuff in your book is really about Texas because Texas is the the kill capital of the United States. Um, so what 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 are the legal parameters of a last meal? I, I mean, are, are inmates on death row required to have a last meal? What can be allowed? No. Um, and I know there was one. I'm asking you a lot of questions here. And then there's a, a guy who used it to his advantage by eating so much that he, you know, that the that the cause that the execution method was going to be cruel and unusual. So there's lots of stuff going on here with meals and, and death. Well, there are no actual laws that require a last meal, that require the mm. state to give uh, an inmate about to be executed what he wants. Mm -hmm. uh, it's generally just done by tradition. Uh, curiously, the state of Texas, which did, uh, you know, you're right, uh, they, they had a lot of executions uh, uh, and uh, what people requested was often granted, but they often requested very simple things. This is stuff they grew up with. They might mm -hmm. want hamburgers. Uh, they might want pizza. They could want a hot dog. They'd want Dr. Pepper, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a long time, Texas was pretty much giving them whatever they wanted. But that stopped several years ago when an inmate uh, made a request for a lot of different foods. And then, I mean, a lot. And then he decided he didn't want them. Hmm. He didn't eat them. And so what they ended up doing was deciding, well, you know, you're not going to get from now on. You don't get what you want. Uh, if you want to eat what's being served to the rest of the prison population, that's what you eat. Wow. So, you know, that guy kind of ruined it for everybody. Sure did. Yeah. Wow. And it really, um, you know, it's um, – it's the kind of thing that uh, a lot of people look at is, well, why should they get a special meal? Uh, other people might say, well, look, this is their last uh, meal on earth. You know, give them something that they want. Uh, but there are no specific laws that require uh, uh, prisons to prepare a meal according to uh, the wishes of an inmate. Wow. I don't think I realized that. So, so your play about him not getting his spaghettios that didn't invalidate his conviction at all. They still put him. No, it. it certainly didn't. Oh no, he was executed. Yeah, right. he was executed. He just didn't get his spaghettios. Right. Right. Um, so, do you know about this case where I believe it was in Texas, but I could be wrong, where a guy basically ate and ate and ate. He used food as a weapon to kind of get out of death row um, because I think they're the. The particular method they were using was was by hanging, and he became too large for that to be. It, basically, they he argued that it was cruel and unusual punishment at that point. Does this does this ring a bell at all? No, it doesn't. And frankly, I wonder if that may be just kind of a little legend. And no, uh, no, I wonder if the it's real really thing. true. There's a lot of stuff uh, out on the internet. Uh, these stories this is on the about news. last meals. Well. Could be. It I'm going to find be. this for you, Barry. This is going to go into okay. the second edition. I'm going to find edition. this. Yeah, it I could be. I want um, credit for it. Daniel J. Glenn, Fasting sure. Nouns. Uh, it is a subtitle. Um, okay, I'm going to find that for you. We're going we're to educate you on this particular matter because I found it pretty interesting. Um, so, you know, when you talk about food, a lot of people, I want to talk about this one case, which everyone is going to know, which I find really interesting. And I think you, you take a different opinion than I would have in the books. So this might be a pretty interesting conversation here. But, you know, I'm talking, I want to talk about the famous hot coffee case, um, the McDonald's right. hot coffee case, Stella Liebeck. Yes. Stella Liebeck, uh, right. I think it was Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that law students uh, learn about 
and I always ask students, what is the rule of the case? Uh, you know, because most cases will have a rule. Uh, and it's a trick question because there is no rule of the case. This was not decided by an appellate court. Uh, this was a jury verdict. Mm -hmm. uh, what people don't realize, often don't realize, is that initially the court, the jurors who were impaneled, thought this was going to be ridiculous, that mm -hmm. this was going to be a frivolous case. And yet when the evidence came out, uh, they they learned that, you know, this is not so frivolous. Number one, this this was not just hot coffee. This was really scalding hot, hotter than it really needed to be. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people think that, uh, well, you know, why why did she have it between her legs? Why didn't she have it in a cup holder? Well, there were no cup holders then. This is one of the reasons why just about every car now has a cup holder. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons. Uh, and the jurors that initially thought this was going to be frivolous at first blush then it came down with a much higher verdict that was ultimately allowed to stand. And the judge did finally reduce it, but said, you know, uh, I, I think the way that McDonald's handled it too, they tried to minimize the impact of it. And I think, uh, I think tactically they did not do a very good job, uh, in terms of having their expert testify, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, food can cause injuries, you know, and I don't think there's anything all that special about it. Uh, because food has been causing injuries for decades, for centuries even. Uh, there's all kinds of cases of people breaking their teeth on things, of people swallowing things that they shouldn't swallow. And the fact that coffee is hotter than you might expect, uh, and I guess the question is, what was, uh, what was a reasonable expectation of Stella Liebeck? You know, that it would actually be so hot that it would cause third-degree burns? Uh, and I think the answer that what the jury said, no, that was hotter than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a case that I think every law student is familiar with. And and I think the unfortunate thing is uh, Stella Liebeck became kind of the butt of jokes uh, for so many people and also kind of became uh, kind of the the poster child for what's called tort reform. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, I find that an odd term, tort reform, which is basically the legislature going and saying, well, we're going to limit how much you can get, no matter what the facts are, no matter what you think a jury might find. And if we really do believe in the jury system, that we really do believe in the wisdom uh, of a verdict that is rendered by a jury of our peers, why do we have to say, no, you can't do this? Uh, you can't go this far. If you think it's worth, you know, X million dollars, okay, you're the jury of our peers. But uh, we've got people, uh, uh, we've got uh, various interests uh, that want to limit that. So, and I think that you may call it tort reform. I guess I call it, oh, we just don't trust jurors anymore. Right. Well, it's a lot of special interests that don't want the, don't want people suing companies. Um, and those big companies are putting money into their political pockets, but that's a, that's a, that's a little outside yeah, the scope of what yeah, I want to talk about. So yep. there, there's a great, a great, the great documentary hot coffee, which is about this t goes mm -hmm. into tort reform for, for about an hour, um, which is, it's not boring. It's extraordinarily interesting, but the thing yeah, I, I have all my law students, uh, see that yeah, every year. It's a great, it's a great movie, a former HBO documentary. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think you can get it on Amazon prime now. 
Um, that's where I saw it. It's it's a great great documentary. But, but the thing I remember learning in, in high school when I was when we were looking at this case was you know people thought this was very frivolous. It was you know they kind of painted it in the media as being an extraordinarily frivolous case. And and actually in the book I'm surprised because you you came off right now you're coming off a little more on the side of Stella. But in the book you kind of talk about how she's the reason why we don't have coffee supposed to be brewed at a certain temperature. And are we supposed to suffer terrible coffee because now it has to be colder? So I'm a little a little surprised at the tact you're taking well, right now. Um, well, it goes both ways. It yeah. does go both ways because uh, there are coffee experts that claim it should be brewed at such a high temperature. But on the other hand, you know, if, if a product uh, is going to be dangerous – uh, no matter no matter what, you've got to protect people against that. So it, th- there are both sides to it, and, yeah. and I think that it's wrong to see that as just a one-sided uh, issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess so. I would disagree because I don't think McDonald's is known for gourmet coffee, so I don't think, A, they're using particularly good beans, and I don't think that 10 degrees difference in uh, the water temperature is going to change the taste of their extraordinarily basic coffee. So I would say that that none of those risks are are necessary. Also, I want to point out for people who are listening that um, in this case, it wasn't like she spilled coffee in her lap. Again, you mentioned third-degree burns, skin grafts, um, mm-hmm. and McDonald's was extraordinarily callous in this case. So um, it's actually, this is one of those strange cases, the first case that I remember like reading about where you felt one way going in, and by the time you learned everything about the case, you could not have possibly gone any other direction besides on the side of Stella. And right. um, mm-hmm. she really got put through the ringer um, in, in in the media, uh, which I thought was terrible for McDonald's to do. And that's when I first realized um, how bad of a company McDonald's really is uh, from from the ground up. But that's my my personal opinion. So let's let's. So you mentioned you know you mentioned food, um, you know damaging people in the past. This has you know gone on forever. I think one of the earliest cases you mentioned is like from 1431, where an innkeeper sued for for bad wine. Uh, so this this kind of goes on forever. I want to tell you a personal story here, Barry. Tell me what you would okay. have done, okay? Mm-hmm. So I remember this is probably I don't know, maybe eight years ago. Um, I was with I was with my mom. We were in Chicago, and so Chicago, as you know, uh, if you ever cross what what I what I like to call the Great Cheddar Curtain um, between Wisconsin and Illinois, you, if you've ever been down in Chicago, you know, famous for um, deep dish pizza, stuffed pizza. Uh, that kind of stuff. So I remember getting one at this place. It was new in town. Went to go get a stuffed pizza. Brought it home. And my mom bit into the pizza. And then she she pulled out um, a curled, like, corkscrewed piece of metal. A pretty large piece of metal. Probably about the size of maybe, like, your pinky up to, like, halfway through to the second knuckle. A pretty big piece of metal. And, you know, what I'm guessing happened is when they are, you know, pulling off the the top of the tomato can when they're doing like opening the the tomato can with a can opener part of the you know probably had was a crappy can opener and you know this piece of metal corkscrewed off that went into the pizza and i remember going in there and telling them this and i was livid (laughs) i was absolutely like i was out of my mind and they wouldn't it was a struggle to get them to even pay like to give us the money back for the pizza now if, if my mom had accidentally swallowed that that would have been she would have tremendous she would have to have surgery to get it out Correct. So in those, in that particular case, you know, what what would you have done? What what are someone's legal recourse and their chances of, of going around, like winning that? Oh, I think your chances, if she had swallowed it, 
mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah. If she had swallowed it, um, obviously, uh, to me, it is negligence per se. Uh, you know, the fact that it's there, uh, you know, the only issue would be, you know, is the, could be. The only issue that it could be is, oh, did you just intentionally put that in there? But assuming that that's not an issue, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, the, clearly uh, negligence in that they're going to end up paying for medical bills, for lost wages. Uh, potentially, uh, there could be punitive damages because uh, they should be held to a very high standard of care. And that's something that just should not happen under any circumstances. So the answer is you're going to get a lawyer. Uh, and there are lawyers who are very good at food injuries. Now, the problem is this is not going to be a class action case because this is kind of a one-off kind mm-hmm. of case. Right. Uh, uh, unlike cases where, you know, you hear about people getting sick because of tainted peanut butter or tainted, uh, you know, something, mm-hmm, uh, tainted mm-hmm. cantaloupes. Uh, typically, there are just a few lawyers that you want to handle that because they're very good at uh, class action lawsuits. Uh, you know, or a good example would be uh, the Jack in the Box, um, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, problem yep. Yep. Uh, that essentially launched the career of a particular lawyer who did very well uh, representing uh, clients uh, on that. And now, you know, he's kind of become the number one lawyer uh, for food injury in, in the sense that uh, it, it's it's widespread, not just a one off. Uh, you know, the problem is, you know, Let's say that your mother had uh, eaten it and swallowed it. Uh, she needs surgery. You know, what are the damages? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a one it's one case. You'll probably get a lawyer, uh, but, you know, and you will uh, because you're probably going to get uh, maybe a hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in damages. Uh, and, and really, there should be, uh, you know, it's going to be settled because there's no way uh, their insurance company is going to defend that one. Right. You know, and it's the insurance company that's going to be involved. And they're going to say, yep, uh, liability and what are the damages? They'll make an offer, uh, blah, blah, blah. Just the same thing that uh, that always happens when you have lawsuits. Right. Well, I guess so. Two questions. First of all, that made me think of something I wanted to button up on the Stella Liebeck case, which I think is really mm-hmm. important, is that, you know, the, the big joke was that she was awarded like two point seven million, I think. Which the yeah, judge... but it was reduced. It right. was reduced on, uh, you know, on uh, post-trial uh, motions. Right. So the judge reduced it to less than half, and then mm-hmm. even that wasn't paid out. They settled for an undisclosed sum, which Correct. you can only imagine is less than what the right. judge would have offered. So right. what, what's crazy about the case is she didn't really make out that. I mean, I, I don't. She didn't make out as well as everyone seems to think that she did. Plus, you have to pay all your lawyers out of that settlement, which is significantly Absolutely. less. Absolutely. So, so right. that that was another one of the misconceptions. So with this with this case, so what what ramifications do you have if, if someone like bites down on the piece of metal, um, and and it's in so that, so you didn't swallow it. Like I don't want my mom to swallow this thing. But what, do you have any recourse after that? Because in my mind, and this is, I'm a very strange person when it comes to that, I'm really strongly staunch about the principles of things. And so in this case, when someone's negligent, especially when you go in there and, and instead of apologizing, they take offense to what what's just happened when this is clearly from, I mean, I saw the can of tomato sauce that it probably came from. Like, to me, I want people to have punitive damages so this doesn't actually happen to someone else. Like, we were extraordinarily lucky. So, in my mind, karmically, you don't want to push that envelope, you know? Um, But what what recourse do you have if you find this in your food? 
um, and and the shop owner doesn't want to do anything about it. Well, the problem is that punitive damages alone are generally not awarded in the absence of actual damages. Mm, so mm -hmm. if you've not been harmed, you can't just sue for punitive damages. However, this uh, things have changed over the last 25 years. If you are dissatisfied with their resolution, there's always the social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. And the, the punitive damages may not come to you, but they are going to be harmed. Uh, you know, once the word gets out that they did this and they treated you so badly, mm -hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing that you may well go to uh, the local TV station mm -hmm. and tell them mm -hmm. uh, that sometimes bad publicity is the kind of thing that uh, that's really required. Right. Uh, and it sounds like uh, in this case, if they're not nice about it, if they're not totally apologetic right. and make it right, you just say, all right. We'll we'll see what uh, what the what the public thinks about this. Right, I think that's. A great I wouldn't do it direction. as a threat. Not not do it as a threat because you you're not trying to extort anything. Right, you just walk right. out and say yeah, because then you know that that's that's pretty shady sure. to do that. But you just call uh, the the TV station. A lot of them have local TV stations have yeah. you know action news or whatever, and they they will uh, you know take up your cause uh, because they think it's it's something that was terrible that happened to you. Right, right. And and there's also social media and the internet because that's what happens uh, right now to to bad actors that you can't hide. Mm -hmm. You just can't hide anymore. No, it's very true. I mean, it's definitely a tool um, which can be used for, for good or for ill. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's a great solution. You know, and, and, and also when you're talking about – see, here's the thing. So there's lots of kind of topics that I'm, that I'm interested in. And what, what's the problem is there's certain things that, that, that are very interesting if you were to capture it and then people fake those things and then no one believes anything, right? So, for example, um, there's this urban legend about um, toes in Chile. And so I think it was a Hardee's, the famous case where this woman claimed to have found a toe inside of a bowl of chili. And after, you know, a two-week investigation or whatever, it turns out she or someone she knew had access to a body and they put the toe in the chili and then found it and were trying to extort money from from the... Yeah, you know. that has happened. Uh, yeah. And the thing people have to understand is you may think you can get away with that, right. but with scientific testing... And uh, I think that was a case where scientific uh, testing showed that it was not possible uh, and other uh, you're not going to get away with it. And right. uh, it's also a crime. Uh, so you can actually go to prison sure. for trying to extort uh, money under false pretenses from a food company, from any company. What also, it also makes people feel like those things aren't real. So when you come to a, a place with a real legitimate grievance, you know, the immediate thought is that it's not real. And that always annoys me when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, bad things do happen. You know, it does, especially now we, with food as being produced on such a mass industrial scale. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, things do happen. Now, luckily, uh, I think for the most part, uh, the food industry errs on the side of caution, which is why uh, you see recalls every day uh, for various reasons. And one of them would be, might be, for example, uh, they found a piece of plastic uh, in a sample. Mm -hmm. As a result, they recall the entire batch, mm -hmm. right. even though it may not be. Or 
uh, it may be mislabeled. Uh, it may, you know, forget to have a, a, a certain allergen declared. Uh, and it may not really be harmful to most people, but they're still going to recall the batch. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that does happen. And also, most companies have methods of uh, of quality control where they're actually, uh, you know, they can detect metal uh, in the assembly line. If if a piece of metal is in a product, they're mm-hmm. going to they will see it as it's coming down the line. Wow. Uh, they will detect it. They have the scientific uh, equipment because they know that uh, that the cost of having that in place is, you know, it may be substantial, but it's far less than the cost of having a piece of metal get into the food supply and right. then having a, a lawsuit and then having to recall an entire batch. Right. <laughs> right. It always amazes me when I hear stories about corporations doing the right thing almost for the wrong reasons, you know, because there's a whole calculation of, you know, how much does it cost to recall versus the cost benefit analysis? Like how much does it cost mm-hmm. to recall versus how much does it cost to prevent this in the first place? And whichever number is greater, that's what they go with. Um, which is just like, like that, that mindset is, 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 is really unique to a corporation because a corporation is a business. It's not a person, which is why, you know, the Citizens United ruling is such a, a, a blow to, to America when you start treating corporations as if they were people because they make these decisions that are, that are not human in any way, shape or form. They're business oriented. Um, and, and that's kind of always been, been my beef, no pun intended, with, with corporations. And, and I found that, you know, a, a nice thread of that through your book because it, it goes on. Um, but but on, on a totally different topic, I want to get to two things here um, before, before we finish up that I just found extraordinarily interesting. And I think it's a little lighter topic than the destruction of the American democratic system. And that is the Great Cookie War of 1984, um, where Procter & Gamble came out with Grandma's Cookies, which were, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they were the first real, uh, quote-unquote, soft batch cookies that you could get off the shelf. So they were the cookies that, um, instead of being you know hard and, and crumbly, they were soft, like they'd just come out of the oven. And this this started basically corporate, you know, attempts of corporate espionage by several of the major food manufacturers. Uh, this is a really interesting story. Well, you know, the, is there anything new in, in the world of food? I don't know. Rarely is there, but if something is new, someone's going to copy it. Mm-hmm. You know that it, it's very competitive, which is why you know going back to the. Uh, the Bud Light uh, commercial. Why was Bud Light, uh, you know, doing this? Because number one, Bud Light is the number one selling beer in America. It's got about 18% of the market. So why do they have to do that? Well, I guess they wanted more. And I think, you know, you may look at it from the perspective of the light beer uh, category itself is diminishing slightly. So if, uh, Bud Light wants to make sure it can hold on, you know, maybe it can't promote the category, then take it away from your competitors. Uh, yeah, uh, competition uh, in the food industry can be fierce. Uh, and and we're talking about some major, large, large companies, you know, and I guess the difference is that it used to be almost all of these companies started out as small companies started by individuals. 
you know, for example, uh, Kraft. Kraft started out as a very small company, uh, Mr. Kraft. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Mr. Hines. Uh, these companies, though, have now become major corporations. They're not owned by individuals. They are owned by corporations, by stockholders. And you sometimes wonder, why are they doing what they are doing? Uh, and I think part of it is that uh, they just can't sit still. They're not happy with success as it is. Uh, and it may be that they've got all these brand managers that are challenged to grow. And sometimes they do things that you say, hmm, is that really ethical? Uh, but, you know, when your job depends on showing some kind of growth and coming up with something new, uh, you're going to do whatever it takes. And yes, coming up with a soft cookie might be it. And as a result, you find out what other people did. Of course, now it is so easy to reverse engineer something that you don't have to go steal trade secrets. Uh, it's not a big deal. Uh, I, I know, of, for example, there is a mustard company in the Far East uh, that always uh, likes to receive mustards that were uh, medal winners of the world mustard competition. And what they try and do is copy them uh, with their, by, by having their chemists copy them. They don't just look at the ingredients. They say, well, we can just reverse engineer these. Uh, and, you know, that's, it's, it's a scary thing, but, uh, you know, food has become a science. Uh, and uh, we've got scientists that are working on that. There's a terrific book. Uh, I think it's uh, the last name is Moss. I think it might be Michael Moss. I think it's called uh, something like sugar, salt, fat or fat, sugar, salt. Uh, essentially, the premise of the book is how the food industry has manipulated our foods to become uh, literally addictive by that perfect combination of salt sugar and fat and uh, it's nothing is left to chance uh, that the ingredients and when you sometimes look at it, the ingredients and in some of the foods that we eat you're amazed at like why do they need so many ingredients for this well everything is scientifically calculated to get you to love it and to be addicted to it so just be careful. No, I agree. Well, I, I want to, you know, we kind of walked around the cookie war of 1984. I want to get into some mm -hmm. of the details because I think that this this was really interesting for for, for several different reasons. Uh, the first of which is, um, so Procter & Gamble come out with this cookie. It's the first soft, you know, buy it off the shelf. Nabisco, Keebler, and Frito-Lay um, wanted to get their hands on this. And every single one of them somehow infiltrated the corporation. Nabisco sent a spy to the production plant. Um, Keebler rented an airplane and took pictures of an unfinished plant. Frito-Lay sent a spy to a confidential sales meeting. Um, you know, Nabisco even, even went so far as to filing a lawsuit proving that this particular cookie was just an adjustment on an existing cookie and therefore shouldn't um, be able to be trademarked. Everyone could use it. Um, they found the, you know, Nabisco found the cookie recipe um, from women who were a part of a, a religious sect of the Mennonites, um, except their religion forbade them from testifying. So Nabisco is kind of up a creek on that. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that went in. It felt very Willy Wonka, um, you know, when, when Slugworth is running around trying to trying to get a hold of the everlasting gobstopper. I mean, it's almost felt, it's felt very much like a real life Willy Wonka story. 
I think uh, it's more than Willy Wonka. I think it's more like James Bond, where you've got uh, sure. you know, nations that, you know, we expect this kind of uh, behavior on the part of warring nations. Right. Uh, but this goes on in a sense uh, that the the big corporations, the food corporations are like, uh, you know, independent nations. Right. You know, and they've got uh, their own foreign policy and they wage war uh, and they attack. Uh, so. You know, I don't think it's all that surprising. Right. Not at all. You know, this is the way, this is what happens, I think, when corporations get so large yeah. uh, that they have a life of their own and they become like foreign, actual independent sovereign nations. Sure. Well, there's a lot of money at stake, you know, and, and I understand oh, sure. that. I mean, mm-hmm. there absolutely is. Uh and and it becomes like a, a real war. I mean, there aren't really a lot of rules except what the what our laws have dictated. Otherwise, it's you know there aren't any rules. Um, so speaking of rules, speaking of ridiculous rules, I want to talk mm-hmm. about, um, if I may, and I don't want to offend your delicate mustard-based sensibilities here, but I want to talk about ketchup for a second. Um, because <laughs> there, there, is, there is a legal definition for ketchup, which which I thought was really interesting. Um, and you know, with with ketchup, ketchup's pretty fascinating on the surface. Obviously, mustard has more nuance, which we'll get to later on. But but ketchup has a lot of very interesting. Um, first of all, that there's a legal definition. Second of all, that you include that entire legal definition in your book. Third, it's actually a, an incredibly interesting read. And I learned a couple of different things here. So there's three particular spellings for ketchup. There's obviously the classic K E T C H U P. There's Hunt's catsup C A T S U P. And then there's ketchup uh, with a C, and all of these are, are official, legal, um, appropriate words for this particular substance. Uh, i got to tell you, I just saw a commercial two days ago where Hunt's was promoting a ketchup with a K, which I thought went against everything that they stood for. Um, so I don't know if, if that even that term has become more universal with the K. Uh, but I want to point out one particular thing here that I thought was interesting. Is there's actually a legal, legally defined flow of ketchup, which I remember was a big deal with Heinz uh, in the mid nine. Actually, Matt LeBlanc got his start on a commercial um, talking about how slow the flow was for Heinz ketchup and how thick it was. But this was, it should not be more than 14 centimeters in 30 seconds at 20 degrees Celsius when tested with a Bostwick consistometer. Uh, There's been a lot of research that's gone into ketchup. Why on earth do you think this is the case? Well, number one, the fact that there are three different spellings, it shows how confused that condiment is, Mm -hmm. right? Right. You know, I mean, it's obviously uh, a condiment that just has an identity problem, you know, and and that should make you suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Immediately. But it's not all that unusual for uh, various products, uh, various foods to have standards of identity. And that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are, you know, you cannot call yourself a ketchup. You cannot call yourself salsa. You cannot call yourself something unless you meet a certain definition. Uh, There are people that are now looking at the, the notion of standard of identity and wondering you know, is this really a good thing? Because maybe it stunts the growth and developments in the industry and in food in particular. Uh, but it does. By the way, mustard does not have a standard of identity. Mm-hmm. Whether something is a mustard or is not a mustard is up to me. 
Whoa. I am the guru of mustard. Whoa. Right? So there. Wow. You know, Holy cow. If you want to call yourself mustard, you better come to me. Holy because cow. as the curator of the National Mustard Museum, I am the one who decides if it's mustard. Whoa. But cur- but, but uh, all, all kidding aside, uh, mayonnaise also has a standard of identity. And that got called into question by a product called Just Mayo. Have you ever seen a product called Just Mayo? Just Mayo. I don't think so. Okay. And what it is, it is supposedly a heart-healthy mayonnaise-type product. Okay. The problem and the reason is there are no eggs in it. Mm -hmm. It is made without eggs. The standard of identity for mayonnaise is that it must contain a certain percentage of egg or egg yolk. And this particular product which was touted as a heart-healthy, uh, uh, you know, substitute or something, like, and it's called Just Mayo, uh, there was some question as to whether or not uh, that could be done, whether or not that was legal, whether or not that was fraudulent. But they were trying to, they were trying to do something, I think, positive, and that is come up with something that tastes very much like mayonnaise as we know it, but is healthier for the heart. And so that brings into question whether or not these standards of identity hmm. really are useful anymore. Uh, right. It was important at one time because, you know, uh, you know, 120 years ago, uh, because it was 1906, I believe, when the first Pure Food Act was enacted, at some point people had to know, am I getting what I think I'm getting? Mm-hmm, and right. eventually they came up with standards of identity. So if something was labeled as jam or ketchup uh, or, you know, whatever, uh, that you knew that it had to meet some federal standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question now is with the advancement of different products now and especially with people trying to come up with heart healthy products uh, and things that may be better for us. Uh, again, depending on what your your viewpoint is, maybe standards of identity have outlived their usefulness. Hmm. By the way, if mm-hmm. you're talking about ketchup, I don't know if you saw, according to the National Condiment Research Council annual report, mm-hmm. ketchup is now the leading cause of childhood stupidity in America. <laughs> I, did, I, I missed that article. Uh, but you I, missed that one. I'll, have okay. a, I'll put a link to it, it on up. the page. I will. Go look it up. I Go will. ahead. Oh, sure. I think it was put out by The Onion, if I if I remember the news source correctly. Uh, no, uh, it was put out by the Mustard Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. They're, they're similar publications from, mm-hmm. from what I can tell. Um, so I do want to mention, so w- what the heck is Miracle Whip then? I assume that has nothing to do, that's not even mayo related because they can't even call it mayo. Right. Miracle Whip uh, is a, it's supposedly a salad dressing. It is Mm. whipped, uh, which, by the way, was the subject of a very important lawsuit. Uh, It is not mayonnaise uh, because it doesn't have the egg in it and it's Mm -hmm. it's done in a a different way. Uh, But it it, it has a totally different flavor. But for a lot of people, it's similar. Mm -hmm. There was a product uh, launched here in the state of Wisconsin uh, by the Henry's salad dressing company called Yogo Whip. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially a whipped yogurt uh, kind of dressing. And uh, the uh, the craft company, which owned uh, Miracle Whip, mm-hmm. sued 
claiming that there was an infringement, uh, that the word whip could not be used in a salad dressing uh, because yeah. of uh, a miracle whip. Well, wow. it it went to the Seventh Circuit. Uh, finally, Henry's ended up winning, but it cost Henry's a fortune. Mm-hmm. They did survive, but unfortunately, that's what often happens. If you uh, can't win in the marketplace, you know, go sue someone for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, years ago, uh, uh, when I, I had a class of students that included a, a young woman from Italy, uh, she was here uh, to take food law uh, from me, and I presented a hypothetical uh, to the class, and I asked them, you know, would you bring a lawsuit in this case? It was a very close call. And when it got to Rebecca, that was her name, uh, said, Rebecca, you know, what do you think? And her answer was, I think we sue. And I said, why? I said, you have to tell why. And she said, well, well, this is America. This is what we do. We sue. Right. I said, good answer. She got an A. Right. <laughs> exactly. Wow. I need to take your class. It sounds uh, pretty easy to ace. Um, I mean, it well, is, if it you're is from true. Italy and if that's your reasoning, sure. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it makes a good point. Um, I want to put a button on ketchup. I know you want to move on from ketchup, but I want to say one thing here because I think growing up, I always wondered what if there was a difference between fancy ketchup and standard ketchup. And it turns out there is a legal difference. Fancy yeah, ketchup is. is for bottles, um, basically the stuff you can put at a restaurant. It's made for the public to be put onto food and regular ketchup. Um, is basically used for cooking, and it's low price. Standard ketchup is um, a little bit cheaper than fancy ketchup. I don't think there's any distinction anymore, I'm sure, Um, but at least in 1945 there was. Uh, So I wanted to talk about um, your work in all the the dairy stuff that that went on in Wisconsin. There's no way we're going to get to it in time, but but it's in your book. It's pretty incredible stuff. You even talk about how Napoleon was responsible for the invention of margarine, and how Correct. margarine almost tore the state of Wisconsin apart, um, and almost tore it from the Union. It was a pretty crazy. Uh, the dairy, the the dairy cattlemen's association, the dairy farmers of America, were out of control in Wisconsin, in my opinion. Um, but it is an incredible story. It's in the book. But I want to close with 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 one question that I'm not sure what the legal ramifications of this are. But I thought it was really interesting, and I'm not sure if this has even been debunked or not. But in, uh, I think around 2012, uh, This American Life did a great story, uh, kind of like an expose on this idea of imitation calamari. Are you familiar with this? No, imitation calamari. Right. Okay. So, so basically what they found out, what was allegedly being done was people were taking um, pork bung, B-U-N-G, and if you're unfamiliar, it's basically the butthole, uh, the entire like sphincter tube uh, I'm sure it has a much more clinical name, but it's called bung in the marketplace, bunghole. Sounds delicious. So what they found out was that you could batter the bung, and it comes in rings, you know, concentric rings um, uh, the, you know, that do its job when the pig's alive, but you could batter this and cook it, and it, and it looked and tasted exactly like calamari, and people were selling it in stores as calamari. And in, I live in California, and there's lots of... You know, there's lots of lawsuits and, and news articles about people who in sushi stores or in sushi restaurants who sell, you know, certain fish as other fish. You know, they sell a common fish as an exquisite fish. So a lot of a lot of this type of stuff goes on. What what are the ramifications for a restaurant who passes off 
like a, a tuna as a you know as a as a as a um as a puffer fish or whatever the exquisite like sushi is uh, or sells bung in instead of calamari well that's it's interesting that you should mention that because probably in terms of food fraud uh fish is the most uh, is the most flagrant example mm-hmm. of uh, right. food fraud going on that uh, by some estimates uh, as much as half maybe even more wow. of the fancy fish that's sold isn't the fish that you think it is uh, you know and I know down in Florida they th- that's become a real scandal uh, you just don't know uh, there's been a scandal over in Europe over horse meat uh, being sold uh, as beef hmm. uh, that's put in things. Uh, what are the ramifications of that? Uh, what can you do? I think that, uh, number one, it's extremely difficult to even uh, prove it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I think in many cases, the restaurants don't even know that they are serving, uh, you know, for example, um, black cod, or, or supposedly, uh, you know, selling something that really isn't black cod. Mm-hmm. You know, they may be selling something totally different, and yet they're buying it. Uh, they're also being victimized by that because, yeah. uh, in, in many cases, uh, you know, unless you are an expert, you don't know what you're getting. Uh, you know, how do you know, for example, if you're getting uh, a if you go into a uh, a meat place, a fancy steak restaurant, and you're told, oh, you're getting prime steak? How do you know that it's prime? Mm-hmm. Can you do it mm-hmm. by taste? Right. Uh, probably not. You know, there may be a cut of choice that's going to be very good, but it may not be prime. But if you're paying for prime, uh, there may be a, there are a lot of products that are pawned off and sold as something that they are not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is fraud. And the only way, you know, number one, I suppose a class action, if uh, there is, if it's widespread by a company, but also that's the kind of thing that social media can probably best handle. Right. Yeah, that seems to be the go-to now. Um, but but I did think it was extraordinarily interesting, um, and it is widespread. The, the fish, especially in California, is, is just crazy. I mean, there's news stories left and right. People are talking about how, um, you know, and as you mentioned, it may, it's the distributors sometimes. It's not necessarily the restaurants themselves who are doing this, but they, they catch sure. a lot of heat. Um, so obviously everyone listening to this is going to want to know more. Uh, they're especially going to want to read about these dairy wars. Uh, how can people find your book? How can people get in touch with you? Well, uh, the the book is called Habeas Codfish, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Uh, they can go to mustardmuseum.com. I think it's for sale there. Uh, you can probably find it on Amazon. Uh, and uh, But you can also go to the, another website called allaboutfoodlaw.com, yeah. which is a fairly new website. Uh, we're also, we'll also be launching a an All About Food Law podcast in a few months as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We're actually uh, 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 recording some of the episodes right now, but we want to get about seven or eight in the can before we actually launch it. That sounds great. I'll have links to all that stuff on on the website. Now, what about this social yeah. media you talk about? Do you do any of that? Well, you know, uh, at 70 years old, I guess I kind of, it kind of passed me by. So I'm not a big social media guy. So you talk you a know. big game about using it, but you don't use it yourself. I know. it. I don't use it a whole lot. No. Uh-huh. Um, but okay. in terms of, you know, it's all about food law. 
uh, you know, check the the website out. Uh, there'll be some interesting articles on there, which we're putting more and more on. Uh, but uh, pretty soon you'll see the the podcast of All About Food Law. That sounds great. I think it, it'll be a lot of fun. When it comes yeah. out, send me a link. I'll put it on on, on the website. Uh, it's very exciting we'll stuff. Do. So you're going to stick around. We're going to talk about mustard, uh, your true yeah. passion, uh, which yes. is very exciting. Um, but for everyone listening, uh, I want to thank you for, for listening. I want to thank you, uh, Barry Levinson, for, for being on the show today and, and introducing me to the wonderful world of food law. So thank you. You are very welcome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design. Written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show, and how could you not, uh, go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn more. You can also subscribe on all of the podcasting platforms, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, and TuneIn. And I'd love it if you reviewed the show. Uh, it really helps the show grow uh, and gain in popularity on YouTube, which kind of helps me continue to do the show, so I'd love that. And if you want to subscribe on fascinatingnouns.com, bottom of the page, you can do that there. You can also subscribe to the newsletter where you learn all about upcoming shows, behind the scenes kind of things, and other shows that I do. You can also follow the show on social media. Right there to the right, you can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. Up at the top of the webpage, you can find links to all of our previous shows and guests. Uh, peruse, enjoy. Uh, it's a great little list we put together. Quite a community, I have to say. And if you like this show, you're going to love my other show, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com. We talk about pop culture technology. Do you like the Marvel movies? Uh, do you like sci-fi? Do you like uh, comic books? We got it. We talk about all kinds of things. We're going to get into Captain Marvel's Quantum Pager, which is a really interesting thing. We're going to talk about Xenomorphs, to the, the monsters from the Alien franchise, uh, things like that. We'll tell you how to make it in real life. It's not just me. I got a rocket scientist, and I got a physics phenom, a master of physics from UC Irvine, Dr. Michael Denon. You probably know him from previous episodes of Fascinating Nouns, fgbt.com. And if you like that show, you'll probably love everything that I do. Why don't you find out? Go to danieljglenn.com. Thank you so much for listening. End of transmission.